So the leadership behavioral impact has the single greatest impact on team climate up to 80%, actually, or in fact, just over 80% of a team climate comes from leadership behavior, not leadership competency. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. You might have heard this quote before. When it comes to company culture, leaders and their approach to leadership make all the difference. Our guest in this week's episode heads up a business that specializes in leadership development and executive coaching. In this episode, we'll discuss how sales leaders can transform their leadership approach to achieve sustainable, high-performance environments. Please welcome the MD of Sorg HC, Anthony Sorg. Anthony, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me. So, Anthony, I'm particularly excited about this conversation, not only because I am a big fan of your work, but also because... We met what feels now a lifetime ago, about 10 years ago, when I was a young, aspiring leader at Fairfax Media. I took one of your leadership courses, which brought an immense value to me and to my professional journey. So that's why I'm particularly excited to reconnect, further pick your brain on the kind of work that you do and learn more about how you can really impact organizational culture through leadership. Thank you, Felix. And that was some time ago. I do remember you on the program in a good way, by the way. And look, I really enjoyed the opportunity to support Fairfax Media at that time with that program, which they were committed to leadership development at every level of that organization at that time. So glad you enjoyed it. Hopefully you've taken some of the lessons forward with you in your career and looking forward to catching up with you as well. Awesome. Absolutely. I think, as I said, some of the principles that you taught at the time it's still something that I think back to and that's pretty much stuck with me. So yeah, it's definitely made an impact for me. Now, from your experience, when you think about your work with your clients, why do organizations generally care about developing their leaders? First and foremost, it makes sense at a bottom line decision for an organization. So there's a large body of research over a number of decades that show that organizations that do invest in leadership development typically outperform over time those that don't. Of course, the caveat around that is what kind of leadership development are you investing in? So we can talk more about that in a little while, but there is a clear business case for the return on investment that you are going to gain from investing in leadership development. How that transpires is recognizing that leadership effectiveness, both competency and behavior combined, has the single greatest impact on organization culture and that organization culture is going to have a direct impact on the level of employee engagement, whether you have extrinsic or intrinsic motivation that sits within your workforce and then the level of discretionary effort that comes based on that engagement to the task or the job that anyone's doing on any given day. And so what the research shows is if you invest in leadership development and you create a more effective culture for people to thrive in and achieve excellence, that you're going to achieve sustainably higher levels of performance with your workforce over time. Got it, got it. So when we talk about leadership, 
from your point of view, what are the qualities of an effective leader? Okay. So it's a good question and one that's asked often. And the answer is not a simple one other than to say there's no one size fits all. That effective leadership um, can come in lots of different shapes and sizes. And so I guess at the heart of looking at leadership effectiveness at an individual level is whether someone is being true to themselves, whether they're being genuine and authentic in who they are, and that they are leading with belief and purpose and leading with, I guess, that commitment not to serve their own interests, but actually to lead in a way that aligns people to the shared goals that they are wanting to achieve together. And ideally those are in line with the organization's purpose as well. And so when we have a look at leadership effectiveness and we have a leadership effectiveness model that we do recommend to people, but it's the combination of competency. So do you have the skill and capability in order to execute on the duties and responsibility of leadership combined with leadership behavior? So it's the combination of the two that allows you to determine leadership effectiveness or not. And I'll give you an example of that. Most of your listeners have probably themselves have worked for a leader or a manager in the past that would tick all the boxes of competence in the skills required of the role, but behaviorally that person may have been quite culturally destructive. So they would not have brought out the best in you, not based on their competency, but actually because of the way that they behaved. And so the behavior, I guess, part of the effectiveness equation is the one that is usually underinvested in by organizations because it's easier to invest in the competency. So doing a skill gap analysis, identifying any areas of competency that you want to address and then either providing or recommending that people do skill development in those leadership competencies. That's relatively easy to address and you can show attendance records and return on investment in that way. But that kind of only just gets you in the game to the starting line. The key difference is going to be actually if you are competent and behaviorally effective as a leader as well. When you talk about competency, does it refer to the technical skill required for the employees to actually conduct their work? Yeah, at a leadership level. Okay. So the leadership effectiveness might be, you know, if we are responsible for setting a budget, financial acumen, for example, might be one of the key core competencies that sit there. If we have to devise a strategy, have I been trained in what strategy is and how do I go about actually developing and devising a strategy? Running an effective meeting, do I know how to set an agenda? take minutes and distribute those afterwards, the nuts and bolts, right? But none of those skills actually are going to equate to effectiveness until you layer the behavioral impact over the top of that. So the behaviors that leaders use while executing those skills is going to determine overall their effectiveness and the impact on the operating climate, the team climate, which is the word that we use for essentially culture within a direct reporting line team. So the leadership behavioral impact has the single greatest impact on team climate up to 80% actually, or in fact, just over 80% of a team climate comes from leadership behavior, not leadership competency, but competency gets you in the game. And look, that doesn't mean that by taking on a leadership role or a higher level of leadership in an organization, you don't have skill gaps. So competencies to acquire, but more and more organizations are expecting leaders to 
be self-aware of that. So do some level of self-assessment and identify any skill gap areas and then drive their own learning in that regard, either through access to internal resources, courses, or materials, or to access those externally, but to ensure that they've got the competencies to be able to fulfill the duties of the role that they're in. Got it. Got it. And when we talk about team culture, how would you define culture within a team? It's a good question. Culture, it gets described in lots of different ways, and there are lots of different textbook versions of it. But when we have a look at culture, it's really, if you want to boil it right down to, it's the way we do things around here and why we do them the way that we do them. And so it's those norms of beliefs and behaviors that make up what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And so there are ways of measuring culture using instruments. And there are some great instruments that are available in the marketplace. And we, we often use those as part of supporting organizations to go down that culture transformation or culture enhancement journey. But it's also something that we should be able to identify part of, I guess, what makes up our culture without necessarily having to use those instruments to do that. And so you've got organization culture, you may have substructure cultures, and then you have team climate. The subtle difference between those two things is a team climate is kind of, as it's described, kind of the weather pattern, the culture of the immediate operating team based on the behavioral impact of the immediate leader, the one-up manager. And so that manager's behavior creates the operating climate for those direct reports to sort of operate in on a day-to-day basis. Culture really refers to the perception of what it's like to work here at any level beyond that immediate team environment. So I might be talking about a divisional culture or a geographic national structure culture as part of a global entity, or I might be talking about the global culture as well. So culture can refer to quite a number of different structural levels, whereas climate will refer to that group of people that reports through to that one manager. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've described what contributes to a leader impacting positively on the culture, so those skills and behaviors. If you turn it around and describe the negative behaviors, what are common pitfalls that you encounter in leadership with people that might not have been equipped with the tools to become a really good leader? And what are some of the immediate steps that organizations and those leaders can take to mitigate those pitfalls? Again, pitfalls. It's difficult for me to characterize them as bad attributes and traits because you can actually have an impact as a leader with all kinds of different behavior patterns, but there's a price to pay for some of those behaviors and there's a gain to be had by choosing different behaviors as well. And so in the leadership behavioral space that I operate in, it's very much about building awareness of the behaviors that a leader or a leadership team are using at this point in time and the impact that those behaviors are currently having on climate, culture, engagement and performance, and then helping them to identify, well, what's the aspiration state that we would like to move towards? What would it look like if we were truly to unlock our full potential as an organization or as a sales team, what kind of climate or culture would we ideally like to create that would allow us to help people to fully realize their potential and perform to a high and sustainable level in the roles that they're doing. What we do with leaders is help them to identify 
that and then we kind of backfill that to well okay what are the behaviors that are going to help you get there and what are going to be the behaviors that may inhibit you and what do your behaviors right now look like which will help us then determine which ones you want to focus on a long way around of answering your question i know but when teams do that it becomes far more a focus on where are we going than necessarily where are we now and how do we band-aid some stuff in the moment it's very much about that journey towards our potential that said There are some behaviors which would probably be pretty familiar to some of your listeners that when we've been on the receiving end of those behaviors from any leader, we know we don't particularly like them. Yeah. (laughs) And so you could probably write your own list of those, but things that fall into that category is when a manager is trying to tightly control the micro of what we do, sort of almost wanting to be in charge of telling us how to put our left foot in front of our right foot in front of our left foot in our role. It feels both unnecessary and it also feels controlling and it feels like that there is a lack of trust and confidence in us to be able to do what we do. I would say that any behavior that is creating that perception in a team member is something that you'd want to have a look at and say, well, is there an alternative to that? And a lot of leaders, a lot of managers, and particularly those that are new into the leadership pathway, so those that step from being a a functional operating expert in a discipline to take on that first level of leadership responsibility. It's often one of those confronting moments where it feels like the right thing for me to do because I was probably promoted because I was pretty good at the job. Yeah. And I get promoted into now leading a group of people who were doing the job that I was pretty good at. And so what it feels like is the right thing for me to do is to tell them how to do the job the way that I used to do it and to be pretty prescriptive and pretty controlling in that. And it kind of feels like the right thing to do. And it's probably the first, I guess, hurdle that we have to help them overcome is recognizing that actually your intention is in a great place, but the behavior that you're using is going to create a perception in people that, yeah, you don't trust them and you want to be too controlling of them. That doesn't mean that you can't, as a leader, help people to learn, to grow, to develop, and to learn from you as well. But you don't, as a leader, you'd know this in your journey, Felix, as a leader, it's unwise to think that you need to have an answer to every problem and that your answer is the right one. That's going to lead very much to you taking a more command and control approach, a more directive approach in your leadership style, rather than what we know is more effective to create a sense of alignment to what we're striving to achieve and that intrinsic motivation that can live in and be switched on inside people where they share that sense of ownership and responsibility to achieve those goals together. If you're using that more directive behavior pattern, then you're basically using an extrinsic motivator and one that's based in a fear of consequence. If you don't do what I tell you to do and how I tell you to do it, there'll be consequence to that. When we use that as our driver and focus for other people, then we're really saying, I don't need you to be intrinsically connected to this. You just do what I tell you to do. And when we do that, people will perform. Fear is a great motivator. People will perform, but they will never perform through to their potential. And they will develop a pattern in their own thinking and behavior, which is to wait to be told what to do and how to do it and when to do it and to do that every day, which in the end, leads to real frustration in leaders. Even those that want to be more directive, they would like to think that when I tell you what to do, how to do it, and when to do it, that you will learn from that, and then you'll, the next time around you'll do it yourself. But it doesn't work that way. So I'd say that's probably the most common behavioral hurdle 
that new leaders need to overcome, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't see that at more senior levels of leadership as well. And there are still some organizations that are operating today that have very hierarchical command and control directive structures and cultures. They perform. It's not like they don't perform. They do get results. But what we do know through global research is that those organizations will typically underperform relative to organizations that leverage what we call more constructive behaviors. So those that really switch on that intrinsic understanding, belief, and commitment from their workforce, and that we're all choosing to work towards achieving excellence in what we do and attain those shared goals rather than just coming in and waiting to be told what to do. Got it. Got it. So in a way, nurturing that independent problem-solving behavior through leadership is probably also a way to protect the investment that you've made in your people, right? Yeah. Look, we spent a lot of money recruiting talent into our organizations. And then we, in many instances, use behaviors that doesn't leverage that or utilize that. And so it doesn't make sense in that regard, in that we're underutilizing the intellectual capability of our workforce and the emotional and discretionary effort, that energy that lives inside people. And again, from your own experience and your listeners' experience, when you've worked for a manager who's been quite controlling, and they're not trying to be nasty, like they're not nasty people, but they do have a real sense of a need to control what is being done in order to achieve an outcome, right? To achieve a level of performance. And where that lives is it's insecurity, right? So there's a level of insecurity for that leader who is worried about not attaining the performance that they feel is necessary in order to be safe for another day as well. And so the emphasis is around task and performance. And they usually have a fairly high level of expertise in the discipline that they're wanting to be controlling in. So they're a subject matter expert often. And so either telling people what to do or solving the problem for people quickly and, and having them go away and execute their answer to the problem. Intuitively, that feels like the responsible and right thing to do as a leader to get the performance. And yet what we see time and time again is it actually creates an environment where you actually build what's called dependence in your workforce. So people who feel that they should out of either respect or because of your expertise being greater than my expertise or because of a fear of consequence. If I don't do it the way that you tell me to do it, if I use my own initiative and it doesn't quite measure up, that there's going to be a negative consequence. When there is that perception that breeds within a team or an organization, you'll end up with a workforce that becomes quite passive. So they wait for the people in charge to take ownership and take control and tell people what to do. And they will happily then execute on that to an acceptable, reasonable, and adequate standard. But that doesn't get you to your potential, right? So to fully unlock your potential, your full workforce potential, we have to switch on the intrinsic understanding, belief, and commitment of our people. So do you think in terms of big picture, organizational culture, thinking, There's this meme almost or the saying going around, especially in tech, fail fast, fail often, which accelerates your learning. Do you think that sort of attitude is directly correlated to the readiness or the willingness of leadership to let people do their own thing and attempt to realize their potential versus an organization that might expect perfection at every step of the way where leadership is more controlling? Yeah. And there's something in between those two things, right? So that notion of leaders who back right away and just let people have at it and good luck 
that's not effective leadership either, right? That's very passive leadership where we haven't even taken the time to align them to the shared goals that we're striving to achieve and why those goals are important to us as an organization or us as a team. And then being available and involved sufficiently enough to bring diversity in thinking together to create the other idea. So when we look at the principle of gestalt and gestalt thinking, if you've got a team of five people working on a problem, the best outcome is not to identify the best of the five ideas and then say, well, we've got five ideas that we put on the table. Let's vote which one's the best. That's actually not the best way of leading a group. And often, interestingly, a leader will probably choose their own idea in that instance, right? But rather effectiveness in leading in that instance is to help people recognize that their contribution of thinking can actually lead to a sixth idea. So the sixth idea is what we want to seek as a team to work effectively together and fully leverage each of our, the diversity that exists within our team and our thinking and our contribution. And so a leader who aligns us to the shared goal, who creates an environment where people feel safe and have a desire to share their thinking in the pursuit of the sixth idea and feel that they're operating in an environment where there is a really strong presence of mutual trust, respect, and value. That's the third option for the one that you talked about. The option of seeking perfection and being controlling, we know that that will restrict creative thinking and end up down that pathway of usually the person with the most authority saying what they want to have happen and how they want to have it happen. And the, the passive leadership style means that we may be concerned about how people are feeling at any given point in time, but actually not aligned to getting stuff done. That is one of the challenges of organizations and particularly leaders who see things in that polarized sort of binary way. It's either this or it's that. There is a third way, and I guess the journey that we take leadership teams on and the wider organization on is actually to understand that third option, that constructive leadership style and that constructive culture that's available. You can get results. You'll get reasonable results through that command and control. Yeah, it won't be your potential, but you'll get results. You can actually even create an environment that performs adequately and reasonably through the passive, particularly if you've been a team or you've been an organization that has taken a market leading position at some point in time, whether it's through technology, through process, through service, if you've taken a market leading position at a point in time, but then your strategy becomes, let's protect that position. That has a real tendency to create a more passive cultural drift. And what happens, unfortunately, is the world changes around us, right? And so we're protecting this position, and yet the changes that happen around us then supersede whatever that we've had. And, and we can, and we've seen it in the marketplace, market leaders can become obsolete pretty quickly as well, right? They can go out backwards and die a slow death in some instances. And there's lots of brands that we can point to that have done that. And they fail to recognize that the very thing that probably got them to market leading position was creativity and innovation. And so when we have a look at that leadership effectiveness, again, it's also about recognizing how are we leading our people, not just for the performance of today, but actually for the organization of tomorrow. And so one of the leadership styles, and one of the things that you want to switch on inside everyone, if possible, inside the entire workforce is this desire to think innovatively, creatively outside of the box type of thinking which no one idea may actually be the answer to our future, but seeds of lots of ideas, lots of thinking can happen there. And then if we have a culture that values that, doesn't want to just sort of invest time in it and let it float away, but values those ideas, tries to bring them together and see if we can't take the, I guess, the core or, or the essence 
the value in each of those different sort of ideas and bring it into something that will lead another evolution in our business, then those are the organizations that we even, we look at at the marketplace today, and we know the organizations that do that because they're leading organizations at the moment. And do you see certain industries having to do more work around moving away from that directive leadership style? No, you can find it anywhere, to be honest with you. I, it's not the exclusive domain of any one industry. There are some industries where it's probably still hanging on to a higher proportion, but I wouldn't say it's the exclusive domain of any one industry, even in progressive industries, even within organizations that have what you would characterize as a constructive culture. You can have subclimates where managers or leaders still drop into that more command and control behavior pattern and create a subculture, subclimate within that environment. And that's why some people can actually say, well, my experience of my climate is this, but my experience of the culture is something different. Um, and because the way in which I'm experiencing the direct behavior pattern of my leader is creating a sort of a weather pattern, a climate for me to operate in on a day-to-day basis, but actually what it feels like to be part of the wider thing is something quite different. And that can work in both directions. So you could have a less constructive wider culture, but you've actually got a manager that is a really constructive manager who's creating an environment for you to thrive in. I mean, people join organizations, but they stay or leave because of the manager. And so when we have a look at the why to that, it comes back to that behavioral impact of the manager. That manager, by the way, if they're operating in a less than constructive culture, but they are a highly constructive manager, that's really energy draining for that person, right? Because they're, they're buffering what is often behavior patterns that are not constructive and that are landing on the manager and they're buffering that, putting a bit of an umbrella up to create an operating environment for their team to be able to thrive. And so it's definitely possible. It's tiring. Those managers will have an expiry date (laughs) in terms of how long they're prepared to do that. But interestingly, when those managers leave, their team will follow, right? Good people in their team will often follow those leaders for multiple stages of their career. Can you think of any examples of companies that have made a real deliberate effort in nurturing their culture and are also public in speaking about that, just in case any of our listeners are interested in looking further into that? Without me naming them directly, because I don't feel that's appropriate either for my clients or anyone else that I'm aware of, but I will refer people to two organizations you can go and have a look at that do have clients that are quite public about talking about their journeys in this space. You've got Human Synergistics, who works comprehensively across the marketplace in leadership behavioral impact. And I work in that space with them. I'm accredited in their instruments and and a number of other organizations as well. But there are some organizations that quite happily talk about their journey that they've taken using the Human Synergistics instruments. I'll tell you one of them because it kind of is the poster child for human synergistics and has been for many years, but Lion Nathan, for example, is an organization that has a a really wonderful story to tell around that culture transformation journey through investing in leadership development. And there's lots of resources that they can provide for you. You've also got Gallup as an organization, talks a lot and their studies involving the Q12 instrument, looking at culture and engagement. There are quite a number of organizations as well that quite openly talk about their journey in that space. You have other organizations as well, like Corn Ferry, Aon Hewitt, and a range of others as well. So there's lots of opportunity for you to go and have a look at what some of those organizations have done, why they've done it, and what the return on investment is. 
So I've got a small practice that I work with my own clients on that journey. There's no one size fits all again way of moving through that journey. There is, you know, working with that leadership team to help them to answer some questions for themselves about where are we, where would we like to go? What is it that we're prepared to commit in order to get there? But essentially the steps that they would need to take to head down that pathway would be an investment in leadership development, both individual development, leadership team development, particularly at the executive level. And sometimes at the board level, I work with a number of boards as well. And then cascading that as deeply through the organization as possible, ideally down to operational manager, team leader level, though not always possible because of budgetary limitations, the organizations who do derive the most benefit. If you think about a workforce where the perception of the culture comes from the experience of 80% of the workforce, so how do 80% of the workforce feel about the way things are done around here, why they're done the way around here, then you have a look at, well, which level of our organization has the direct impact on the climate of 80% of our workforce? It's actually operational leaders and managers. And so back to the beginning of our discussion, Felix, and where we first met, that was a strategic decision by that organization, by Fairfax at that point in time to say, hey, we've got to put this understanding in the hands of team leaders, of operational managers to help them understand the differences in the behavioral impact that they can have and choose the behaviors that are going to unlock the full potential of the workforce. They couldn't do that though, without cascading that understanding from the executive team. So typically the starting point is you'd start at the executive and then you'd cascade that through the organization, but ideally get a version of it in the hands of operational team leaders and managers. Got it. Well, Anthony, on that note, thank you so much for joining today. I had a blast talking to you and I learned so much as always. If people want to continue the conversation with you and learn more about your business, Where can they connect with you online? Thanks, Felix. Likewise, mate. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to catch up with you again. And I know you've, you've mentioned Maruba a couple of times. I know we both have a good possibility of running into each other down at the beach at some point. We'll do that and catch up in more detail. Look, if people want to learn more about us, a couple of good locations. Our website is www.sorkhc.com.au. They can also look me up on LinkedIn, Anthony Sork on LinkedIn. We've got links through to some resources that are available both through LinkedIn, but if people want to reach out, they can do so through those channels and then very happy to have a chat and a conversation, no obligation, just happy to talk to people and help them understand what that potential journey looks like. And if we're able to support them, fantastic. But if the conversation helps alone, happy to do that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thanks, Felix. See ya.